too because she has been fighting Lyme's disease for oh, actually a couple decades since 84 when she first contracted it but it didn't get worse until later and then it got worse and worse and uh, it really took hold of her the last couple of weeks and, and just took her completely down so I'm thankful she's out of the pain and the, the suffering that she went through for so many years uh, that's the only part I'm thankful for <laughs> because I'm going to miss her so very terribly uh, she was a kind person. As uh, she was kind of like uh, a cartoon I saw one time of a couple polar bears digging into a, uh, oh, what are they? The ice houses the Eskimos built igloo. Two two polar bears digging into an igloo, and one polar bear said to the other, "He says this is my favorite kind: crusty on the outside and chewy on the inside." And uh, I always thought of Marla on that one because she could have a kind of a sarcastic approach uh, in a lot of ways with her humor, as do I. But uh, on the inside, she was very tender, very kind, and very loving. And I'd better move on from this. Uh, anyway, I was just... Uh, heading into a book that we're going to address today and, and just above it the book is Ecclesiastes if you want to be turning just above it is Proverbs 31 and a, I, my eye just caught because I had it marked uh, in verse 26 so she opens her mouth with wisdom and in her tongue is the law of kindness now this is the section in Proverbs 31 about the virtuous woman the virtuous wife and uh, no doubt it is a prophetic passage speaking of not only the church through the ages, but more specifically of the end-time church, because it represents the gathering up and the finalization of the 144,000 firstfruits who are to be the bride of Christ. So it's very prophetic looking forward to the time that we are now in. And it just struck me that our persona, our approach, should very, very much include the law of kindness. Kindness is a law that we are to live by. It is one of God's greater attributes, is that of kindness, His love expressed in a kind approach. Uh, so we need to think about that. What brought it to my mind when I read that was I got a phone call from a lady yesterday that I had met oh, years ago, actually, probably six, seven, eight years ago, through someone else in Hurricane that she had a, a relationship with at the time. And uh, it was very interesting, and I don't know what yet to make of it, in a way, she kind of has a Protestant approach and doesn't know much of, of God or His truth at all. I've explained a couple of things to her over the years via phone. But uh, she had hardly met me, didn't really know what I represented or who I was. And she came to me one day and said, that was when she was still here. She's in the state of Washington now. 
But she came to me shortly after I met her and said, you are the one who's going to bring forth the truth. And I kind of did a double take. What did this woman that I hardly know, where did she get that idea? But she says it's been confirmed over and over. Uh, she said, I had a dream years ago that there would be someone who come along who would be the one who would tell the truth. And she said, you're it. And it's been confirmed over and over, she said to me, in various ways. And uh, even though she's in Washington now, she calls me every once in a while to see how things are going and says, well, I just had it confirmed again. You're the one that's supposed to bring forth the truth. She says, I don't really know what all the truth is, but she says, you're the one to bring it. I've, I've kind of wrestled with that and where she got that, but it is ingrained in her mind, and I still don't know her that well, but she keeps in touch. And she called yesterday and uh, said she had heard that Marla had died. I guess someone in Hurricane had been told by someone here or something uh, that news, and uh, then he called her, so she called me back. And... Uh, we got cut off as I was coming up Hurricane Hill, but she sent me a text that was very, very kind and told me to keep up the faith, that everything was going to work out. And, uh, of course, she doesn't understand the truth and said, well, Marla's with you. Uh, she's there with you every day, even though you can't discern her because she thinks she's been changed and gone to heaven, of course. Uh, but that, that's okay uh, that she doesn't understand that what impressed me that was that hardly knowing me, she was so kind. Here's just this Protestant lady who had and has a law of kindness about her. She is also the type that uh, try to help people who are ill, do everything she can for them, and support them. She's just one of those caring individuals. So it, I, I wrote her back, and I just said that was so kind. And then my eye caught this word up here, uh, the law of kindness. And we need to be sure that we personify that. Uh, we have no room for negativity. We have no room for accusation. We have no room for the not the attributes, but the not the qualities, even the characteristics of Satan. He is the accuser of the brethren. Uh, he is the negative one. He is the one who tried to control the world, who tried to control the universe and control God. And we cannot be that way. So give that some thought, that anything you say, anything you do, does it project kindness uh, toward others? You know, God is very, very kind to this world. He's so loving and so kind that he sent his son to suffer and to die for sinners. Uh, we will not suffer and die for sinners. We will accuse them of being sinners. Well, there's the difference between us and God and between Satan and God. So, uh, let's be sure that if we're to be a part of the end-time church uh, and fulfill this prophecy... The law of kindness is in our tongue and in our thoughts. 
because that's the way God is and that's the way Christ wants His bride to be. So it just kind of struck me when I, I just happened to see Law of Kindness up there of the kindness that had been done to me in a very, very trying time. And uh, here's just some Protestant out in the world who gives that kind of support and kindness. And it is our job to be that way too. If someone looks at this congregation, will we, will, would they say, those are very kind people? Would they say that? Uh, we need to do what is necessary to cause them to have that emotion. There's a whole sermon in this, or a series of them. But uh, I just thought I'd mention that in passing. Uh, one other announcement, uh, word got around that I had said we were going to have services at my house, and that is true, but not today. Uh, we've had a problem with a staticky phone line for oh, months, actually it goes back years, we've worked on it, not been able to do it, fix it, and we have to broadcast out on the phone line from there for meeting over there, so we need to just simply run a whole new line which we plan to do in the next week or two and get that done. Uh, I have actually more room there than we have in this room. And uh, we already have the refrigerator and we'll be heating it and cooling it and doing all that, so there's no sense in duplicating it here. Uh, I couldn't do it before because of Marla's health issues, uh, but with her not there, uh, we can. So uh, we'll, we'll make that move when we get everything prepared and ready for it. So we'll, we'll let you know when that time comes. Let's go then into the book of Ecclesiastes. This was suggested to me as something that we have not done in a long time. And uh, there's a, a very, very powerful message in this book, or messages, I should say. Uh, people are sometimes confused by the book of Ecclesiastes. But we really need not be. Uh, this book is written by Solomon, and he was the wisest man who has existed apart from Christ himself. Uh, and he was given wisdom, and yet he also continued to learn by his experiences in life, as we shall see. But he wrote this book primarily from the standpoint of being a human being. He did not write it from the standpoint of eternal life, of the promises of the new covenant. He mentions God in it, yes, but he writes it primarily from his physical experiences as a human being. So there is very, a great, very great deal for us to learn, but understand as we go through here that... It is speaking of the futility of humanness. Now, you can get all discouraged about this book if you're not careful because it has a certain pathos about it. Uh, and yet, we understand that there is something greater ahead, as did, I think, Solomon. But he wrote this simply from the human standpoint. And there is a great deal for us to learn about our human goals and purposes and desires and directions that we might go. 
and where all of those lead and, and what value they have. So let's, instead of me going on about it, uh, get into it and see what Solomon had to say about it, at the same time keeping these words of preface in mind. So he says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So he was the son of David. He was the king in Jerusalem, so this could only be talking about Solomon himself, even though he doesn't give his name here. He was the only one of David's sons who became king, became king in Jerusalem to this point. Now, two of his sons would have a divided kingdom, Rehoboam and Jeroboam, later on, but if the, when this was written, he was still alive in the king in Jerusalem. And Rehoboam and Jeroboam were his sons, not David's sons. They were grandsons. So this has to be Solomon, undoubtedly. Uh, and the wisdom he was given, he refers to, and so on. And God even says that he gave Solomon this wisdom. So I think that is fairly well established in context. And he starts this out by saying, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, repeating it, all is vanity. Vanity means not just looking at yourself in the mirror and thinking, oh, how lovely I am. But vanity means futile. It means not lasting. It means something that is temporary. Something that comes and goes. is a passing thing. Uh, I mean, even in the word, as we use it, and say that person is vain, how do we assess that? Well, because they preen themselves, they dress themselves a certain way, they try to act a certain way uh, to impress you with them. So we say that person is vain. They have their mind on themselves. Well, that is an application of what Solomon is saying here, or has certainly an application in what he is saying. In that, beauty fades and muscle fades and all of those things that we choose to be self-important or vain about go away in time, don't they? You, you can have one view of yourself at age 20 that you don't have at age 80. <laughs> the image in the mirror is entirely different. So, no matter what you have that you think is so important or better than anyone else it will fade and go away some of the greatest minds on earth have come up with Alzheimer's or something else that's caused all that wisdom or all that intelligence to go away they no longer have it and death will certainly do that as well after you die you rot and go from flesh to dust and uh, all that that you thought was so important all piled up uh, is certainly something that no one wants around because it is gone. So when he says vanity of vanities, we need to understand he's talking of it, and he'll get into it, to the whole broad spectrum of life and human existence. He's not just talking about someone thinking they're strong or beautiful. 
He gets into all the ramifications and aspects of life in this book. So he summarizes, or gives us a preface at least, of where he's going with this book right off the bat. As soon as he identifies who he is, uh, that's what he says. It's all futile. Uh, If you look at this life for what it is, it's not worth anything. And he goes to begin to explain that in verse 3. What profit has a man of all his labor which he takes under the sun? That's a good question to ponder, to think through. You go to work, you work, doesn't matter whether you're a farmer or a stockbroker or a, a taco bell maker. Whatever you do, you go to work, you try to earn a living. What profit? What overall does that give you in life? Uh, yeah, you get a paycheck, you go home, and you get it all spent probably almost before it hits the bank because the people who run the big corporations in this world have it all figured out. They do, through math and through their programs and analytics that they run on computers now. They know how much $10 an hour will buy. And they calculate their prices based on how much you make so that they can get it all. Now, it used to be that when this country, and it was a better off country at the time, had mainly the men working and the wife homemaking and child rearing and even gardening and all the various things that uh, Proverbs 31 says a wife can do, even buying a field. But she was basically at home taking care of the family and all its needs. And a man could go out and what he earned could make him a living. He could have a home. He could have a house. I mean, (laughs) a car. He could uh, put clothes on his children's back and they could eat. But they figured it even back then to the point where they could get all of it. So that you had to struggle to be sure your children had enough clothes to wear and school expenses and and food. And you didn't really most of the time have a fancy house, but you had a roof over your head with one man making a living. But even then, they were calculating how much you made (coughs) in determining the prices. Remember the song... How you worked all day, moved 16 tons of coal, and you owe your soul to the company store. You think the company did not know how much they were paying the miners, and that they could figure out how much money they needed to charge for each item in the company store to keep you in debt to the store so that you could not quit work, and you had to continue to work for them and be in debt to them. They had it all figured out. Most of the miners never grasped that. Or if they did, they were incapable of doing anything about it. So then, over time, they had a brilliant idea. Why don't we tell women that they are being treated unequally 
and that they need to wear suits and ties, pantsuits and ties, and join the workforce so that they can be equal to men. So they put them in the workforce, entice them in various ways to go to work, and one of the enticements was in raising the price of rent and the price of food and the price of clothes so that it's soon required two checks to support a household. But the women were not given the equality that was advertised. They still made less money, but the corporations still got it all. So now you have two breadwinners in the house, and they still can't make ends meet. And maybe one of the kids who's living at home because he can't make it on his own has a third job or a part-time job to help keep the wolf away from the door. You think they don't know all this? Of course they do. They've planned it. They've plotted it. It is a way of keeping us under subjection and under control so that we make money for them. That's what it's all about. Now, a lot of the women who went to work didn't calculate the costs. They had to have another car, extra transportation to get them to work. They had to upgrade their, uh, their wardrobe to have clothes that could be worn to work. They began eating out more because they were at work and didn't feel like going home and making dinner. Uh, on and on it goes about the extra costs, withholding, taxes, got part of it. I calculated it one time, even back in the 60s, that a lot of the women who are now working weren't making any money because of the extra costs that are required for them to go to work. Or if they were making it was, you know, a dollar or two an hour above what the extra costs that they had incurred by going to work. So what profit does a man have of all the labor which he takes under the sun? There are those who are there to take it away from him. Some who are con people or who have extra special skills and so on do have the capacity to make more money than the average worker. But he'll get into some of that a little later on because we'll find that they're not any better off. So he poses the question, what profit is there there? Well, you make enough money to keep you alive uh, and uh, to pay your basic expenses to live. But what does it do for you in the long run? One generation passes away, and another generation comes. But the earth just keeps on going. It abides forever. It's there for generation after generation after generation. So, so you work all your life. And then you retire, and a year later you die on the golf course. The big help. <laughs> or you live in this day and age maybe to the age of retirement, and by then you have cancer and diabetes and heart trouble, and uh, all that Social Security and that money you're supposed to collect, and that life insurance policy and IRA that you might have collected, now goes to the medical profession to try to keep you alive another six months or a year. So all that you worked so hard for all your life now goes away in disease and death. 
then another generation comes along. And anything that you might have accrued that was left behind that didn't do you a bit of good when dying time came, uh, somebody else gets. He'll address that a little later too. So it's just one generation after another. Kind of futile, isn't it? Now this generation, uh, apart from disease now and war, is living longer than many generations of the past. You know, life expectancy in America was like 30, 40 years uh, back in the 1700s, 1800s. That's all you could expect to live. Because of starvation, because of war, because of various factors that cut down the average lifespan. Now, there were people who were living to 70, 80, 90, don't get me wrong, but when you go to war at age 20, uh, your life expectancy is very short. If you went to the Vietnam War, your life expectancy was very, very short. Uh, you could expect to die there. If you survived, you were one of the lucky ones. So, it just goes on and on. Verse 5, the sun also rises and the sun goes down. You can watch it come up, you can watch it go down. I did last night, beautiful sunset. And it hastes to his place where he arose. It just goes round and round, but there comes a point where the merry-go-round for you stops and they don't go round anymore. But the world itself keeps on turning. So, what effect did your life or mine have? It comes... We die young or get old and die, and it's done. So from a purely stand, physical standpoint, he's already showing that this life is all vanity and futility. There, there's nothing lasting. It just comes and it goes, and it's done. The wind goes toward the south and turns about to the north. It whirls about continually, and the wind returns again according to his circuits. So God has set up a process on this earth that was going to continue for at least 7,000 years from the time he created man and recreated uh, the earth as we have known it up to this point. We're quickly polluting it and destroying it, but it still goes and the wind goes about its circuits, the sun comes and goes and the moon because God said that they would continue until this plan is complete. So that goes on, but we don't. We are not immortal. We are very, very fleshly, and we soon disappear. You know, I barely remember one of my great-grandparents. Grandma Miller was in her 90s when I was just a kid, and uh, she had stories to tell me about Pancho Villa, who visited her house in Happy Valley, Arizona, just north of Phoenix. Wasn't anything there then, it was just a valley. Uh, now you see a sign that says Happy Valley. But uh, she went out there in a covered wagon. Uh, she had Indians come to her door and threaten to kill her if she didn't give her food. She had 12 kids, and a tornado hit and turned her house upside down, and she and her kids were all sitting on the ceiling, nobody hurt. I remember those stories because Grandma Miller shrunken and aged as she was had stories of the old west that just enthralled me I don't remember her husband I don't know that I ever met him my great grandparents on the my dad's side I never met who were they I have no idea it only takes about two generations and it's all gone right 
That's what he's saying. It's, it's just not there anymore. So, what's the point? <laughs> you know, he's, he's, he's getting there. What's the point of this life? If there's, not, if there's nothing more, what, what are we doing here? Paul expressed it uh, a different way. He says, if there's nothing more than this life, we might as well eat, drink, and marry, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Why try to live a, a code of conduct? Why try to have good characteristics? Why be nice? Why be kind? You're going to die anyway, so just do what you want and have some fun, because you're going to die. And you know what? That is a society and a culture that Satan has laid on us. In America, our culture is, if it feels good, do it. We just want to have fun. Don't want to work. Don't want trouble. Don't want anybody to tell us what to do. We just want to have fun. They make songs and movies about it. Girls just want to have fun. You know, that's what our society is premised on. And Paul said, if there's nothing more, why not? And he's explaining here that that is very much the truth. If there's nothing more, why bother? Okay, he says, uh, the wind returns to its circuit, the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. Under the place from where the rivers come, there they return. So, the water that runs into the sea evaporates, becomes clouds, goes back over the land and rains, and the, the cycle that God set up. So there's the same amount of water on the earth, uh, whether it's in the sea or raining and in the land. That just continues. It continues and goes on. But he's pointing out that even though that is, in that sense, eternal, we are not. So he says, verse 8, All things are full of labor. Man cannot utter it. You know, Everything on this earth, even though it's a beautiful earth that God created, it's all work. It's all hardship. It's all striving to do or accomplish certain things. And we don't have the power to do them. We have limited energy. We have limited uh, intelligence. Limited capacity to do the things that we would like to do. We have limited time because many times we have things we want to do and we don't have time to do them and it's a frustration how do you get it all done in 24 hours well you don't uh, so this life creates difficulties that we have to deal with that are not easy and God made it that way remember how he made the garden of Eden the temperature was perfect the plants were perfect everything that was there was good and when man fouled that up, God kicked him out of the garden and gave him thorns and thistles and cactus and bad weather and hard soil. And he says, you will toil and sweat and make a living by the sweat of your brow. In other words, life is not going to be easy anymore. It will be tough. It will be hard. You plant, and hail comes. 
You plant and drought comes. You plant and floods come. And life is hard. You work and make a living for someone else instead of trying to work for yourself. And government taxes come. And withholding comes. And Obamacare comes. And on and on it goes. So that it's tough. Man cannot utter it. You can't express the difficulties that life contains. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. We always want to see more. We want to always want to hear more of the things we want to see and hear. Um, we never see enough money. We never hear enough cash registers. Do women ever see enough handsome men? Do men particularly ever see enough pretty women? Uh, now, now you're still always interested in seeing another one. So, you know, why can't you just be satisfied with one? But that's not the way the eyes and the ears and the senses are. God made us in such a way that our appetites are insatiable. Now, some have appetites for this, some have appetites for that, and some appetites for something else. But whatever their appetite, whatever the direction their interests run, they're never satisfied with it. There are people who are scholars, who have an appetite for learning. And they learn and they learn and they read and they study and they get all this knowledge, but they never get enough. They're still looking for more at the time they die because that's what they find important to them. So they're always frustrated, right? That's why they keep studying and looking is so they can find the answers to the questions they have and most of the questions they have on that level of intelligence never get answered. Now, if they went to God, they might find some answers, but they're not going to go to God. They're going to go to evolution or some other thing and try to figure out scientifically how you and I got to be here. It's a futility. Whatever man does, he's never satisfied. Verse 9, the thing that has been, it is that which shall be. And that which is done is that which shall be done. And there is no new thing under the sun. It just repeats over and over and over again. Well, my great-grandmother I told you about was faced with danger from both Pancho Villa and the Indians and from the desert sun in southern Arizona these, what, 150, nearly 200 years ago, I guess now, 150 anyway. You know what? Not going to be very long till danger comes to your door in the form of the UN, in the form of soldiers sent to take your guns and your food and your life if they can at all get away with it, to rape and to pillage and to destroy. Is there anything new? No, same thing my great grandma faced, you'll face, unless you have some protection from somewhere. It never changes, does it? Always the same. It was the same in the days of Genghis Khan and Napoleon and wherever it was the same in the days of Cain and Abel 
where your brother is liable to rise up and kill you. Nothing has changed. Is there anything whereof it may be said, see, this is new. People come up, I guess they didn't have sticky notes back then, but uh, that's, not a, that's not really a new thing. We're, we're not talking about little inventions. We're talking about the cycle of life and what goes on and, and uh, labor and family and the whole of human existence. There's nothing new. It's all the same. It has been already of old time which was before us. There's no remembrance of former things. As I said, I only knew one of my great-grandparents and she's virtually gone and my kids don't remember her at all. Uh, you know, that's just gone from them. It's not a part of their memory bank or their understanding whatsoever. Neither shall there be any remembrance of things that are to come with those that shall come after. So even as our grandparents, great-grandparents are forgotten, uh, so will we be forgotten. Now we may be the, we are the last generation, so if we're changed into spirit, we will not be forgotten, but if things were to go on another hundred years, two hundred years, we also would be not even a memory. Gone. So what good was that? All that you went through in this life will be gone. No one will remember it including you. Verse 12, I, the preacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. So now he's going to say again, I was the king. I've, I've expressed to you a downer here. <laughs> the things are not, not too good on this earth. Now I'm going to tell you again who I am, and I'm going to tell you what I did. I've expressed all this futility and this vanity and how it's going to do you no lasting good. Now let's hear what I've learned. He says in verse 13, I gave my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all things which are done under heaven. Now this man didn't have to go to work for a living. Uh, he was at work as king. Now he had responsibilities as king, yes, but he also had other people that took care of most of those responsibilities. So he was not working on a chain gang 10-12 hours a day to try to just feed his face. So he had time to search out all things done under heaven. I want to know what life is all about. I want to understand the depths of human experience and what works and what doesn't work. Now I have sometimes through my life expressed to God and thought through that you know mankind doesn't have a clue what he's doing down here he comes up with these inventions and thinks boy this is going to make life better well are chemical fertilizers making life better or are they causing cancer and heart disease and diabetes did he have such a great idea Monsanto and DuPont and all these companies that came up with such great ideas. Oh, let's make a bomb. Let's make a bomb so big that mankind will be afraid to use it and we'll have everlasting peace if we can just build this bomb. And then in a moment of panic, they decided they'd drop one of them on Japan. Two of them on Japan. 
And if Japan hadn't surrendered, they'd have kept dropping them. And from there, they went to hydrogen bombs. And on and on it has gone. And now there are so many of them that they could wipe all humankind off the face of the earth. And every bright idea that man has come up with in the last 150 years has caused all kinds of chaos. Are we really better off with all these phones sticking in our ears giving us cancer? I don't think the lady that was texting the other day and walked off a bridge, or not a bridge, but an off, off of something and fell 20 feet or so, I don't think her life was made better by her iPhone or whatever brand she had. Uh, there was somebody the other day texting and fell off a mountain right here nearby. And they run these fine cars that we're so much better off with into each other all the time. And there's blood and guts and hair and eyeballs all over the highway. I don't know that we're a whole lot better off than we were with horses and buggies, do you? Now it says in Daniel that in the end days man will run to and fro all over the face of the earth. So we've got these airplanes that fly us here and there, except when they fall out of the sky once in a while. But they fly us all over the earth. Are we a whole lot better off? Are we? Let's see. Now, I've been to every continent of Antarctica. And I saw some beautiful things that man has made. And in my travels, I generally always try to get out of any city I landed in as fast as possible and get something near something God made. Because that's what impresses me, not what man made. I remember one time a man wanted to show us the original church offices in Johannesburg, South Africa. They wanted us to go downtown and enjoy that smelly, wretched, miserable city. And I says, isn't there a game park near? <laughs> if I could spend a day, I'd rather look at a gorilla or an elephant than I had mankind stealing, robbing, killing, pillaging. Fell in the church there. Walked out of the finest... Mall in Pretoria, the capital of South Africa. And someone with his girlfriend and someone stabbed him just as he walked out the door of the mall. That's that's where I want to be. Yep. All the inventions of man, are they really a help? You know, I what's prompted this is I want someday to be able to ask the father and the son, somebody's come up with an idea over here. Is that a good long-term solution to a problem, or is that going to create problems? We can't do that. We experiment. We do things out of selfishness and vanity and to accrue wealth, and we don't think what it's going to do to people. Computers seem to be a wonderful thing, don't they? You can do a lot of things with a computer that enhance and make life easier. And yet, on the other hand... If all the computers that have ever been made were to suddenly quit, society would descend into absolute chaos, starvation, and death within days. So in the long run, is the computer a good thing? There's you an open question to ponder. <laughs> I would like to have been able to ask Christ the first time somebody made the first awkward computer is this a direction that mankind ought to go? Will this help? Well, 
Will it help if somebody hacks into the buttons that you push to launch a nuclear attack? Is that going to be a big help to see hundreds of millions of people wiped out? I don't think so. Where mankind has gone in the last 150 years has not been an improvement. And we're dying of diseases that were unheard of, almost unheard of, even when I was a child. You rarely heard of anyone having a heart attack. <clears throat> Diabetes was known as sugar, and very, very, very few people had it. It was, it was an astounding thing to hear of diabetes. Cancer was almost unheard of. I'm only 73 years old, and as a child, 60 years ago, these things were hardly known. Now they say one-third of Americans will have cancer, one-third will have heart disease, one-third will have diabetes. Now some of them are going to have two or three of those at once. But we are a sick and dying generation. And there are all these drugs that they've now created going to be a good long-term solution. Eventually the drugs kill you. If the disease doesn't, the drugs will. So what have you gained by going and getting the drugs? Will you live another six months, eight or twelve months, or two years or three? And then the drugs destroy your liver and kid kidneys and you die in absolute agony because your kidneys quit? Or you're on a dialysis machine that sucks all the life out of you every three days, two and a half days, whatever it is, three times a week. And you take a day to recover and then you go back in and do it all over again because you're so washed out. And you contemplate suicide because things are not so good. Wouldn't it be nice to have Christ here to say whether something is good or not? And we wouldn't have to experiment. I, I, I long for that day when we quit polluting the earth and ruining the earth and ruining ourselves and can say, Father, or Brother, should I go do this, or should I go do that? That's a great idea. Do it. Or, oh boy, don't go there. That'll bring misery. He knows. We're limited. That's what Solomon's trying to get across. We are so limited. Our, our life is full of, of labor. So he gave his heart to seek and search out by wisdom all things that are done under heaven. He wanted to know what was good, what was bad, what would work, what wouldn't work. Uh, he wanted to, to check it all out. So he says, This sore travail has God given to the sons of man to be exercised therewith. To be tried by it, tested by it, checked by it. So that's what he did. When he kicked them out of the garden, he says life's going to be hell on earth, to put more, I mean, modern parlance to it. Your life is going to be nothing but difficulty. And ever since, it has been hard to be happy, to make ends meet, to lead a fulfilling life, to be happy at the end of it with everything that has occurred. Life is hard, you know? It's going to get real hard here when all the things that we've come to expect are going to be taken away in our welfare society. But when the bubonic plague went through Europe and people were dying as babies and 
life expectancy was like 20 years plus overall. Life was hard. And through mankind's life, they liked the daylight where they could see their enemies. They, they feared at night because someone might, an army might come in. Someone might sneak in and kill them. So they lived in fear. That's why people built cliff houses here in the West. That's why they tried to get in a safe place so they could lay down at night and not worry all night long about whether they were going to live through the night. So they took great measures to try to be safe through the night. And on and on it goes. What am I going to eat? How will I eat? So God gave us this life as a trial, as a test, and it is designed by God himself to be difficult. So if you think life's difficult, realize it's by design. Now we'll discuss the design perhaps a little bit later and understand what it's all about. But that's what he's saying here. I want to figure it out. I want to know what this is all about because God gave us a tough road to hope. Just the way it is. We see death. We see sickness. I just lost my wife this week. Now that's trial. That's test. That's bitter travail. That hurts like nothing I have ever experienced in my life has hurt. I've experienced some hurts, but not like this. It's just like a black hole. It's... it's you, you can't you can't fill it you can't grasp it you can't you can't deal with it you gotta but it'll take a lot of time I've talked to people who years later were still going through a black hole over the loss of a husband or a wife or a child there are women who have had miscarriages who still suffer daily 40, 50 years later as a result who have decided to have an abortion when they were a child or when they were just young and now they're 60, 70 years old and they haven't gotten over it because they felt like they murdered that child so their life is full of uncertainty and insecurity and frustration and self-doubt and conscience over having taken the life of that child things are tough all over <laughs> I'm sorry and Solomon's telling us God made it that way now he didn't make abortion don't get me wrong but I'm just trying to explain the stuff that we go through that is not easy I've seen all the works that are done under the sun he was the king he could watch the populace he could see everything that came everything that went he was there when the argument came over the baby and whose it was and saw the agony of the real mother and the jealousy and the selfishness of the imposter mother and had such wisdom he says bring me a sword we'll just cut it in half and we'll, we'll divide this baby up and everybody can be happy yeah right it became immediately apparent who was real and who was not who was causing the trouble and who was not causing the trouble we have those same things today. People who cause trouble and people who try to help solve trouble. 
you never know until you experience it who's who and what's what. I've seen all the works that are done under the sun. I've seen everything that man has done, including trying to steal babies. Behold, all is futility and vexation of spirit doesn't last. Whatever you tried to do gets unwound. You go into business with great hopes, and then this happens or that happens or something else, and suddenly you're bankrupt. And all that time and energy and dreaming that you put into building that business that you thought was going to be such a success is down the drain and gone. And you're sitting there absolutely broke, credit wrecked, trying to figure out how am I going to get my next meal. It's all vanity and vexation of spirit. That which is crooked cannot be made straight, and that which is wanting cannot be numbered. How are you going to straighten out this mess we're in today? Nobody will listen. You can have all the wisdom of the Bible, the wisdom of God. We have such a vast treasure store of knowledge here about human life in this book that so few read and so very few understand. And yet all the answers to life's problems are contained right here in this book. But nobody cares. They're going to find their own way. And you can't tell them, can you? You know what? Even God can't tell them. That's why he is going to resolve it in the same way he did in the days of Noah. He's going to kill the people of this earth off. Let Satan do it. Let man do it to himself. But God is behind it. God is endorsing it. The only way he can ever get the attention of the people of this world is through mayhem and suffering and death. That is what it will take to humble mankind enough that when he comes up out of the ground as a human being once again, for him to say, maybe somebody can tell me what to do. Maybe somebody knows more than I knew. I'm human again. Do I want to go through what I went through before again? Or can somebody show me a better way? And even after that, those who come up in the great white throne judgment, some of them are going to say, I'm not going up to Jerusalem to keep the feasts and worship the king. God cheated my people, Ishmael, all those years ago, and I'm still not going to worship under the feet of David, the king of Judah. Even after all this transpires, there will still be some who will not be humbled. So Christ says there in Zechariah, okay, no rain. You're going to be stubborn, Ishmael? He says of Egypt, anyone in the world, Egypt represents sin, sinful mankind, but he points out Mitzrayim or Egypt as, a, as an example there. If they are the ones, they'll get no rain. Someday they're going to get serious enough when everybody else has rain and everybody else has food and they don't got any. They're going to say, I think I'll go keep the feast. 
what does it take? God in his wisdom has prophesied thousands of years ago that things would be the way they are today and that he would just have to absolutely wipe out most of mankind and start over in the millennium with the Father and the Son here to rule because there's no other answer to mankind's futility. That which is crooked cannot be made straight. And that which is short cannot be made up. It's, it's deficient. It can't be fixed. On a human plane, that is absolutely true. There is, there is no fix whatsoever for the U.S. government today. You can jump on the Trump bandwagon all you want, but he can't fix anything. He might be able to keep it from getting any worse. No, he can't. He might slow it down a little bit. Hillary would make it worse quicker, and so on. But Donald Trump, even though he's a hero of a lot of people, cannot fix America, and he can't make it great again. It is deficient, and it is short, and it cannot be fixed. It is going down into captivity, 90%, actually a little over 90% of the population of this nation are going to die within the next year or two or three or four or five, whatever it takes. It's going to happen. And those who are left behind will be slaves and leading a very, very hard life. That's what's happening in the next five years in America. There is no hero. The only hero is the Father and Emmanuel, the Son. And they will come shortly thereafter and straighten this mess out. But there is no hope for America. God even says through Jeremiah, Do not pray for this people. They will not repent. He will turn a deaf ear to any prayer we make for God's bless America. It is not going to be blessed anymore. It's done. It's finished. That which is wrong cannot be made right, and that which is deficient cannot be fixed. It's right before our very eyes. This is prophecy. How is it prophecy? Because it repeats over and over and over again. Every empire that has ever been has fallen. And so is this empire. And so is the Chinese and the Russian empire. And all those which are coming up to supplant America. The beast and the false prophet are coming as a world-ruling government under Satan. But they will be iron and miry clay, and they won't last either. In fact, they will only last a very, very short while, and Christ will destroy them. So, hey, we're still in total futility. With Satan being the prince of the power of the air, and mankind living under his rule, there's no answer. Man does not have any kind of answer whatsoever. Their latest inventions aren't going to fix things. I communed with my own heart, saying, I looked around, I saw what other people were doing. That's a mess. That can't be fixed. I communed with my own heart, saying, Oh, I am come to great estate, and have gotten more wisdom than all they that have been before me in Jerusalem. Yes, my heart had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. So he says, I saw no wisdom, I saw no knowledge in everything that's going on around me, but I have more wisdom. God gave it to him. 
than any other human being. If anybody's got the answer, Solomon says, it's got to be me. Okay? There are people today who say, if there's any solution, I'm the answer. Politicians, warmongers, movie actors, whoever, scientists, they think maybe they have the solution to cancer. Maybe they have the solution to war. Maybe they have the whatever. Well, Solomon looked around and says, Nobody got it, but I have more wisdom than anybody, so I'm going to look into my own heart. So he says, I gave my heart to know wisdom, to become even more wise, to gain even more knowledge. He says, and to know madness and folly. So I'm going to try it all. I've been given wisdom, and I've used that wisdom, and I've done some good, and yet everything's still a mess. So what am I going to do now? Well, I'm going to check out play. I'm going to check out madness and folly and just doing anything I feel like I want to do. If it feels good, do it. Think that's new in our society? <laughs> Solomon did it. Others did before him. Protestant son did it. Give me my money, daddy. I'm going to go have a good time and a wonderful life. And everything's going to be great for me. I want my inheritance now. I don't want to when I'm an old gray man who can't do anything. Uh, how am I going to drink and chase women and make merry uh, if I'm 80 years old when I get my inheritance? Give me it now. I want to have some fun. <coughs> so he went out to enjoy madness and folly. I perceive that this also is vexation of spirit. He says... Before I even did it, I realized that there's no answer there either. How many in our society have gone to Hollywood to make it big and wound up with dying of overdose or murder or whatever? And very, very few make it. And those that do often die of overdose or some self-inflicted pain. Want to be a rock star. Okay, be a rock star. Die of a cocaine overdose or something at age 30 or 40. Most of them. Be a rapper and get killed, shot by somebody else. You know, they all think they're going to make it big. <coughs> and then when they make it big, there are thousands of people trying to take it all away from them. And often do. Their agents uh, seal them blind. And they wound up brokenhearted suicidal, divorced five times, and miserable. So he says, even seeking fun is a vexation of spirit. For in much wisdom is much grief. The more you understand, the more you grasp that this life on this earth, apart from God, is total futility and winds up in sickness and death or early death or whatever. And he that increases knowledge increases sorrow. Christ was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He had all knowledge, he had all wisdom, and yet he looked at mankind in his day, even as Solomon looked at it in his day. And what he saw made him sorrowful, it made him grieve the mankind was so sick and selfish and that all that he did 
was utter futility and vanity and everybody died and was forgotten so what Solomon understood here and wrote down Christ experienced and saw and observed and became a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief because of the frustrations of human life so now that I've got you all totally discouraged let's uh, end for today